Good day and welcome to this week's edition of my podcast. This week I'm delighted to have Ruud Janssen. Ruud is CEO of the Habaroni Declaration for Sustainable Development in Africa. Some of you who may not be familiar with that, you will hear in a little moment directly from Ruud. Ruud's going to tell us a little bit about natural capital accounting and specifically about the, the community of practice for Africa that he recently launched. Rude, it's a pleasure to be able to speak with you today. So tell us, you're CEO of the Habaroni Declaration for Sustainability in Africa. What is this program? So the GDSA, as we refer to it, was signed by 10 countries in 2012. And the reason why I mentioned 2012 is that at the time, 10 African countries came together in Khabarone under the leadership of our then president, Ian Kama, to discuss what they felt were pertinent issues for Africa that should be getting a more permanent place on the global agenda. And the Rio Plus 20 meeting in Rio was going to be held in June of that particular year. And coming together, they argued that Africa was known for its nature for its natural resources and was doing a lot of trading with the rest of the world when it came to particular natural resources. But they felt that they didn't really have a full appreciation of the value of those resources and the value of nature, biodiversity, etc. And they felt that that would be a very strong message that they should take to Rio plus 20. As you probably recall, that was the third Rio convention sort of meeting. The original one was very clear on environment then the Joburg one, Rio Plus 10, was more on a environment where people need to have a place in that need, people need to benefit from it. Rio Plus 20, in my imagination and others, was more to sort of close the loop on sustainable development and discuss a lot of the economic aspects of nature. They felt that to have a better appreciation of the value, the economic value, which, by the way, is not money in the bank. So don't, don't get me wrong. We're not sort of privatizing or monetizing uh, nature and resources. It's more to appreciate the true value of biodiversity, ecosystems, etc., just to to support uh, better decision making, planning, and policy. And it really is the origin of the of the Habarone Declaration. So its genesis was as a, a secretariat that would promote and encourage natural capital accounting. Is that is that it? That's correct. Yes. So there are two sort of strands that run through the secretariat that I lead, and the secretariat was set up a couple of years after 2012, they, as they realized that setting themselves up as an action platform wasn't enough. There needed to be a sort of driving force behind an action platform. So the Secretariat is really just to support the mission. And and you're right to state that. that the mission is to incorporate the value of natural capital in, in public and private sector policies, decision-making and planning. And the second strand that sort of is directly related to that is that you would want to do that by pursuing sustainable development, sustainable production, consumption in such a way that you would have those resources, that biodiversity and those ecosystems, and to get the benefits from it, to get the flow from that for, for many generations to come. Just so that we don't lose any of our audience in the technicalities of it, to be clear, what we're talking about here is placing a value on things like clean water like breathable air, like forest cover. Is that correct? Absolutely. It is generally sort of natural capital has been used to describe the stock of renewable and non-renewable resources, look at plants, animals, air, wealth, soils, you know, 
and combine that with the yield because we use those resources to generate benefits for the economy, that both directly and indirectly. Indirect benefit is whatever they're underpinning the, the economy. Direct benefits are more, as you mentioned, delivering clean air is a direct benefit from having healthy ecosystems. So in that way, the term natural capital is used specifically to indicate that we're really talking about a capital asset. When we talk private sector and business, we always talk about balance sheets. We talk about assets, the assets of a company. Before you invest in the company, you want to know what assets it has. Funny enough, with governments, we don't do that. We have human capital, we have produced capital, but natural capital simply doesn't enter that equation. And governments really should think in terms of balance sheets. What is our balance sheet? We withdraw from natural capital, which we do, to generate benefits to the economy. We need to, at the same time, figure out how much we're drawing down from our natural capital assets and to what extent you can do that without having to sort of reinvest to make all of that sustainable. So we don't draw down so much that, say, in Okavango Delta loses the very species that attracts the, the tourists because then you, you, know, you, you lose an entire industry. How evolved is this form of accounting globally, but also specifically in Africa? So globally, we have the UN Stats Division, and they have developed a set of methodologies and tools to measure natural capital in a way that allows countries to make it part of their national system of accounts. Those are most advanced in terms of water, forests, minerals, energy, etc. They're pretty solid and robust set of tools and methodologies. They're used quite commonly in the world over now, where the accounts are still experimental in the field of ecosystems to measure goods and services. And some of them are sort of the aesthetic value of your, of your nature. It's a bit more tricky, but uh, towards the end of this year, beginning of next year, we should have a pretty standardized procedure that gets approved at UN level. So we do have the actual methodologies and tools to apply to that whole counting world. And how optimistic are you that both your membership, which I think is how many countries do you represent? The GDSA represents 16 countries at the moment, and there are about three to four who are going to join soon. But the community of practice, which I think you're indirectly referring to, uh, which we set up just about a couple of months ago now, has over 40 countries in Africa, from which practitioners and policymakers are joining community of practice. And, and that to us very encouraging. And to give you some background to, to how that came about is that a lot of work on natural capital started not just with the GDSA. I mean, the World Bank had its WAVES program, accounting for uh, and valuation for ecosystem services. That started around about 2012, 2013, became a bit more pronounced. And a lot of efforts were working towards people working on the technical. What is encouraging to us was that not only were there a number of international resolutions. The UNEP resolution was the most prominent one that really made sure that the entire world accepted the whole thinking behind natural capital accounting. And what is to me very encouraging is that the community of practice has a lot of policymakers who are part of it. And this is where the trick is with, with a lot of things we do is that, you know, at the technical level, we can be or scientific level, we can all in agreement that you know, this is really good work and this is really helpful in terms of big, making better decisions, etc. But if we don't get through to the policymakers, we need to get that information in very sort of simple terms to say the total value of a forest is a lot more than selling the individual trees. And if you get those messages across in very simple sort of infographics, 
uh, it really helps. And that's when your national capital accounting is a technical uh, issue. As talking to your accountants and economists, you need to speak their language. But from there, you need to go into, is that information useful to, to policymakers? And, and that really is, over the last couple of years, that has really taken off, which is, to me, one of the most encouraging signs. That is encouraging. More policymakers taking more of an interest in ecosystem assessments. Which of your members are the most advanced in being capable of evaluating their ecosystem, undertaking those assessments? It really depends a little bit on which part of it. Just to give you an example, South Africa is really quite well advanced in terms of ecosystems. They're even measuring the health of rivers in ecosystems and watershed. Uganda has done extremely well when it comes to biodiversity. They have some account. They put a specific value within the context what I mentioned earlier of being able to make decisions, etc., of chimpanzees, which they did together with the WCMC. And Botswana, for instance, has done extremely well when it comes to water. It's a water situation and the value of water, if you like, to the economy that initially triggered the interest in natural capital accounting in Botswana. And they're now in their fourth year running of producing their own water account. And they have a specialized unit sitting in the Department of Water Affairs that produces that material every year on the basis of which it feeds into tariff setting, it feeds into discussions on foreign direct investment, and etc. Liberia has done really well when it comes to forest and conservation areas. So it really depends. And usually what we find is that countries are good at the issues that concern them most. Broad brush, but that, that tends to be something that uh, is important. And it's a growing movement from everything that we've heard you say now. How has that growth been facilitated? Has it been primarily as a consequence of keener interest from policymakers in the way that you pointed to? Has it been the advent of technologies that enable better mapping and visioning of, of ecosystems? I'm thinking in particular of, of satellite technologies that enable one to look at forest growth or declining forest cover in certain cases. What's been the real catalyst to growth of this natural capital accounting movement? Well, first, I would say that it's been the realization that people need nature to thrive. Nature can be comfortable without us, but we really need nature. And the association with habitat loss and the fact that we need to have more of an appreciation that in order to make use of those ecosystem services sustainably, we also need to invest. What has made it possible to make that almost tangible is figures and map. You appreciate that most policymakers don't get too excited when they see a table of figures, but they do get more excited when they see their own constituency on a map and say like, well, here are areas with great potential. A good example of that is the work that we did with conservation in that particular case in Liberia was to map ecosystems and high forest carbon potential in, in tropical forests and to map that out so you have an appreciation of all the ecosystems that are there and potential is vis-a-vis whether it's carbon or whether it's tourism or whether it's mangroves, storm surge protector, etc. And that really made it very tangible for a lot of policymakers. So it's a bit of a combination, but technology over the last decade has made a, a very big difference. Has the finance industry taken a keener and keener interest in this? Are you seeing some of the big asset managers and pension funds placing onus on companies that they're invested in to provide 
better accounting of how they interact, how their operations interact with the environment around them? Yes, I have. Africa is lagging behind a little bit. You see more of that movement in other parts of the world. And, and what is interesting in terms of the private sector and natural capital is that they have a natural capital protocol, which is made out of various sub-reports and looking at various products from textiles to water within the value chain. What I see in the private sector is that there's a lot of work within those natural capital protocols to see how is environment impacting on their value chain and what they must do to, to put back. Not so long ago, I was talking to a board member of an interesting uh, bulk supplier for water in, uh, in the UK, and they became very interested in investing in the watershed so that they would reduce their cost for getting the water up to a particular standard before they could send it through the retail chain. I have had similar discussions with people who run breweries and are saying, you know, the water quality is going down. We need to spend a lot more in terms of chemicals to get the water up to quality where we won't lose our license to produce, you know, one of the biggest brands in the industry where you will find that the quality of the water is so important for the formula to produce that particular drink. They're saying we should invest further upstream so that we can avoid having to spend a lot of the chemicals. And it actually works much better in terms of, of a business model to look at environment that way. So I see various developments in the private sector that are very encouraging. That's good to hear. Rude, I'm assuming that quite a lot of the momentum is generated by people's concerns about climate change and the correlation between ecosystem conservation and climate change. Am I correct in making that assumption? I don't know whether you're aware of the Dasgupta Review report, which came out in, in earlier sort of draft in April, commissioned by the Treasury. Make that point as well. But what is interesting is the way that point is made, in my own experience, is that we will see that habitat loss and loss of biodiversity has been going on for quite a while. But that climate change is thrown into the equation as a factor that has now moved that into a different level of exponentially getting more worried about it, people getting more worried, or seeing that uh, climate change is making a lot of our biodiversity and ecosystem uh, concerns worse. So it's not on its own, just a reason why we are overly concerned, but it becomes part of a bigger picture of a bigger formula and hence is absolutely crucial to, to make sure that it doesn't grow completely exponentially and out of reach. Tell me, if our audience wanted to understand which African nations are the vanguard of natural capital accounting and have some of the most progressive policies in terms of conservation of their ecosystem, where should they look? Who are the pinups and who's going to make fast progress, do you think, over the next few, three years? There are actually a good number of them. What we did a couple of years ago was to check and see how the members of the GDSA were doing vis-a-vis other African countries and in terms of national capital accounting, and, and they all came above average for Africa. That picture is rapidly changing because we're not the only one to do this work. Our membership is growing, which is very encouraging. In a very sort of general way, I would say that South Africa is doing well when it comes to natural capital accounting and tourism-related stuff. Botswana is doing well. Rwanda is doing well. Uganda is doing well. Liberia is doing well. And there are some countries very close seconds where Namibia is making great strides. Kenya is doing okay, but they're still a, a bit behind. They tend to concentrate more on forest and tourism, not as broad-based as some of the other countries. Gabon is coming up strongly. So 
Yeah, there are a good number of them. But we also see developments up in, say, countries like Senegal. They've just joined the GDSA. They're very keen talking to the Gambia. What is really encouraging, Marcus, is that as a result of five years sort of rattling the cage, if you like, we've really woken up a lot of countries, like I said, not just at the level of the technicians who understand what it means. The resource economists have known about this for many, many years. But to make that change from it's a technical issue to now becoming a policy and a planning issue and getting the policy makers involved means that there's been a sort of groundswell to say like, hey, we want to be part of this. We, we don't want to be left behind. We know that there's some front runners, but we can catch up. And that's really what I've seen, particularly over the last couple of years. That is encouraging. Your point there about policymakers taking a, a keener and closer interest in this made me think, of course, about nomination of Kamala Harris as Biden's VP candidate in the US. We're just on the eve now of the Democratic Convention, and she has not been shy of hounding the petroleum producers. She has a a good pedigree of doing so over many years. It makes me think that perhaps if we get a Democratic president in the White House at the end of the year, that the environmental movement could get a good shot in the arm, and that would be good for the whole natural capital accounting movement. Are those your thoughts as well? Yeah, I agree with that. And if I can throw in the natural natural capital accounting perspective in this is on energy, is that where we've done some of that work, that where others have worked on, on energy accounts, you find that many economies have had substantive subsidies in place that have continuously subsidized the fossil fuel industry. And if you were to do a financial capital accounting exercise on that, you will find that you take away those subsidies, which can be interpreted as perverse incentives. Uh, there'll be a lot more scope for other forms of, of energy whether solar or wind or other sort of renewable energy form. And we would have potentially been in, in a different place today. And I'm encouraged by people like Kamala Harris, who is obviously aware of these type of things and the protective measures that maybe not just the previous administration, but also administrations in other countries have applied because of vested interests and other economic reasons. We would be in a different place had we had a much earlier appreciation of all those subsidies and going into an, an industry and really make sure it's, it's real incentives and other prefers reasons behind that would be, be brought to, to the fore. I think we would have, with the figures that natural capital accounting can produce, we would have been in a better position to take some very clear decisions much earlier on. And I'm not therefore saying like, oh, now it's too late. No, no, no. I'm, I'm a stubbornly optimistic about the the future. Uh, I think a lot can be done, but we need to make those decisions quite soon. Ruth, thank you for that observation. Really encouraging. I think that I was concerned that coming into this conversation, that given that all authorities all over the world have been preoccupied for the best part of half a year now, fighting a disease pandemic, that perhaps the, the momentum behind climate change movements that we saw particularly in 2019, but also this movement to do more to protect our ecosystem would perhaps be lost. It seems to me from what you're saying that that's not the case. There is momentum. You're seeing from your own membership increasing applications from national governments wanting to call on your support for the purposes of of natural capital accounting. You've 
mentioned the, the community of practice that you've helped to evolve and to develop with representatives from 40 countries, including policymakers. And finally, we've touched on the point of the prospect of someone with a strong environmental pedigree potentially in the White House uh, next year. It seems to me that there are grounds for optimism, which is really encouraging. We know the clock is ticking. We've heard from all the climate scientists and others about dramatic scenarios, and we've seen Statistics, I think even looking at my news feed this week, that the U.S. has experienced some of the hottest Julys on record for oh, since records began within the last five years. I think I'm correct in, in stating that. So we, we don't have the benefit of too much time, which is why it's so pleasing to hear that there is real impetus and momentum gathering behind a... Um, it's an entire field that you've been representative of and banging the drum for over the last years, which now seems to be taking on more momentum. And that's great to hear. So, Rude Janssen, thanks so much. The Habaroni Declaration for Sustainable Development in Africa. We're lucky to have people like you and your organization helping countries to quantify the value of nature and to use that as a form of measurement. But uh, perhaps, who knows, one day, might even rival GDP as a barometer or an indicator of national wealth. Right. Um, um, if I may, uh, Mark, the issue of GDP is actually quite quite interesting because if we do see this better appreciation of natural capital and looking at it as an asset that we should throw into the mix, GDP, as you know, it fails to take account of the contributions of, of natural ecosystems. It's, it's measuring economic growth, and it, there's an assumption that economic growth will automatically be translated into, into well-being. We know that is unfortunately not the case. You know, whether we, you take the UNDP Human Development Index or whether we go into the direction of a more inclusive Wealth Index, which is something that uh, the UN, particularly through their environment program, is uh, is promoting, which would refer to some of your social worth of your manufactured capital, your building machines, your human capital in terms of health and skills, education, but includes natural capital into that equation, your biodiversity and ecosystem. You, you get a much better better measure. In a very simple terms, when I discuss this with other audiences, and they ask me why I, I don't seem to be too taken aback or too enthusiastic, if you like, on GDP, I give them a simple question and I ask them, you know, if you dig a, a trench one week, that labor and the fact that you now have a trench goes into your GDP, it shows expenditure. If you fill that trench the next week, the labor going into filling that trench go also goes into your GDP. But after two weeks, you're left without anything. All you have is what used to be a trench and what is now back to a flat surface. But it goes into your GDP. To what extent does that really measure wealth? And to what extent is that a measure that we should keep on using? In that sense, inclusive wealth, to me, where you have that social capital, the human capital, as well as produced capital and national capital, that, to me, is the, is the way to go. Because it really is the only measure uh, for now that I can see that really addresses the whole notion of sustainable development and also takes in that notion of the need to invest and not just draw down natural assets and just making sure that if real sustainable development must capture all of all of those assets and people need to realize that we we are i think on the verge of having to use different indices maybe in combination with gdp i'm not just saying throw throw out the window completely but 
There must be different ways where people can see that GDP is not always measured for environmental issues, but just for the for the benefit of the planet as we extend into our planetary boundaries and overshoot some of them. We must find ways to capture that in a more sustainable development context. Rude. On that note, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Marcus.